Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Powell Power, the Fed chair, plays down inflation risks, investors calm. Chip crunch. President Biden focuses on supply chain weaknesses and responsive and recovering. The latest on the health of Tiger Woods. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move Today and a truly electric show for you this Wednesday. We've got the CEO behind electric vehicle startup Lucid Motors joining us to talk about going public and one of these funky SPAC deals. Yes, we'll explain as he revs up to take on a former colleague, none other than Elon Musk. And from the promise of electric vehicles to the perils of cybercrime, the CEO of FireEye, that's the company that first uncovered the massive solar winds hack will be joining us after yesterday's important Senate hearing. The bottom line, the scale of the hack is still unclear and may be ongoing. So how do we protect ourselves better? We'll be discussing now on Global Markets. EV, in the meantime, stands for excess volatility. Red in Asia, as you can see, the Hang Seng sinking some 3%, its biggest daily loss in decades after the government there announced a tax hike on stock trades. That's a warning to the United States. Here in the U.S., the Nasdaq plunging 4% at one point on Tuesday before recovering and futures. Yeah, we're a little bit lower, but I'd call that stable. And it's all thanks, I think, to Fed Chair Jay Powell, who promised that the massive Fed stimulus will continue until at least the jobs picture improves. Powell played down inflationary and rising bond yield risk, calling them a statement of confidence in America's economic future. The ultimate result, beaten up stocks like Tesla, is now up some 4% pre-market. That fell more than 10% at one point in Tuesday's session. What else? Well, Bitcoin also bouncing, helped by the news that both MicroStrategy and payments giant Square have upped their investments. What did the song once say? It's hip to be square? Hmm. We'll discuss. But first, we're on Powell's promise. The Fed chair telling Congress all systems go on stimulus and not to panic over prices. My expectation will be that inflation will probably be a bit volatile over the next year or so due in a significant account amount to particular things to do with the pandemic. I don't think that those effects should either be large or persistent. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us. Uh, Jay Powell squaring off, should we say, to those that are worried about inflation risks here, but also those that are perhaps saying the stimulus is too much, there's froth yeah. in the markets. He's laser focused. We've got jobs to bring back. 
Yeah, he was sanguine on the inflation worry here. And he said, look, you know, it's not like we expect, he said, by no stretch of his imagination does he expect inflation to spike here in the near term. And this concern about big budget deficits and inflation, we've been hearing people warn about that for how many years now? And it hasn't come to fruition. So there's some sort of disconnect uh, overall happening there. He said, while there are some bright spots in the economy near term, good news on progress on vaccinations, waves of fiscal stimulus to date that have kept some American families solvent at least. There is a long way to go here before we're back to full employment until things are are normal. And, you know, it's interesting, Janet Yellen, the Treasury chief, top economist, and also this this Fed chief, they've been pointing out that the unemployment rate at 6.3 percent on paper, that that headline unemployment rate that we report every month, it's it really needs a big asterisk next to it. There are three full percentage points that you can add for people who lost a job in the pandemic and aren't even looking for work. And the government also says there's this up to 0.6 percentage point misclassification error. So you're talking about the same kind of of unemployment that you saw at the peak of the Great Recession. So. A reminder there that there's still a lot of work to go until full employment here. And 6.3 percent may mask a little bit the pain and suffering that's in the American labor market. Mask a lot, I think, Christine. And it's something you and I have been talking about for months. And we know that some of the lowest paid job sectors, tourism, the services industry are going to be the last to come back fully even as we transition out of the pandemic and we see more vaccines. Interesting, despite some of the pushback from the Republicans over the size of the scale, even the timing of the latest plans over stimulus, a whole host of business leaders coming forward and saying, get it done. Yeah, 150 of them in a letter that just was released this morning from all kinds of different sectors saying this is incredibly important for the business community and for the American way of life. And and I think that that is so interesting, given the Republican pushback you've seen today in The Wall Street Journal, a piece by Mitt Romney, Senator Mitt Romney, calling the COVID-19 rescue plan from this president a clunker and said that some of these policies actually could lead to job loss. That's his assessment. Earlier this week, Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, I saw a tweet from him where he said that this this effort to uh, have child poverty in the United States with $250 or $300 a month direct payments to poor families, he said without a work requirement, that is welfare. That's clearly a political gambit that he has there uh, against the whole COVID-19 relief. But this Biden says it's moving forward here. Um, We don't know what it'll look like in the end, quite frankly. And we know that the House is hoping to vote on it on Friday. Will there really be a $15 minimum wage hike in there? Unclear. But it is big, $1.9 trillion. And uh, it has the potential to have important money into the hands of real families pretty soon. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Crisis talks in the White House today over the global chip shortage. President Biden will order a review into the U.S. supply chain for critical materials as the chip scarcity leaves U.S. automakers idling. John Harwood joins us now. John, we've been talking about this for weeks on this show. We've had Ford. We've had General Motors saying, look, we're going to have to slow production because we simply don't have the pieces. And what? The United States is just over 10 percent of production. China, Taiwan. It is a national security risk. That's right. And this is an element of President Biden's agenda to try to revive American manufacturing, which we're going to see unfold later in the year. Uh, What he's trying to do is uh, both in part 
um, uh, establish Americans' economic independence from China. You know, the rise of China as a manufacturing power, as a low-cost manufacturing power, uh, has had big benefits to the United States, but also uh, created some vulnerabilities, uh, as in the uh, dependence on uh, American manufacturers for parts from China. So the president is going to have bipartisan members of the House and Senate come discuss it. He's going to issue this executive order. Uh, it's going to uh, initiate a review uh, of the supply chain and what the weaknesses are of the supply chain. Uh, but Joe Biden has been serious about uh, manufacturing policies that uh, are more aggressive than have been advocated in the past by uh, Democratic presidents, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, for example. So uh, we'll see how far this goes. This is a first step today, uh, but he's going to try to uh, use this as part of his China policy and part of his manufacturing policy. Perhaps also part of the Taiwan policy as well, John. We could throw that in there, given how prolific they are in the production of, of chips. But it's bigger than this. And I think for every nation around the world, they've looked at their supply chains in light of what happened during the pandemic. And here in the United States with PPE, I think everybody suddenly realized that whether it's medical equipment or PPE, the reliance on Chinese supply chains in particular, but broader than that, too, is a risk in a crisis. That's right, and it's pharmaceuticals as well. Remember, right. uh, we've got a, uh, uh, a uh, situation, a health situation in the United States where uh, you mentioned uh, PPE, but you've also got uh, uh, production of uh, drugs, life-saving drugs that uh, can assist with the pandemic. And uh, the, uh, Joe Biden doesn't want to be dependent on foreign countries in a crisis that could be a squeeze point for the United States, give them leverage over the United States or simply uh, create a shortage that can't be uh, met during uh, a crisis like this. So, yes, this is going to be a, uh, an across-the-board push by the administration to try to see what they can do to uh, safeguard supply of a range of critical materials that American manufacturers need. Fantastic. John, great to have you with us. So John Howard there. All right, jubilation in Ghana now as it becomes the first African country to receive COVID-19 vaccines under the World Health Organization's COVAX program. Hundreds of thousands of doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine manufactured by India's Serum Institute arrived today. David McKenzie has all the details. This is the moment when those 600,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine arrived in Ghana, the very first of the COVAX initiative, which is a global initiative to get vaccines to low and middle income countries. You can see the level of pomp and circumstance getting those vaccines in. Earlier they left the Serum Institute in India and there will be many countries in the coming weeks, particularly in the African continent, who will receive vaccines through COVAX. Now, this is both a moral issue, uh, say, World Health Organization officials, uh, but also a public health issue. They say that if any one country still has transmission of COVID-19, even if other countries have been vaccinated, it gives the virus an opportunity uh, to continue to mutate and more variants to come through, which could put everyone at risk. The Trump White House largely ignored COVAX as it was set up, but the Biden White House has been much more active and engaging. And just in recent days, G7 countries announced $4 billion of additional funding to COVAX and vaccine facilities like it to get vaccines, predominantly the AstraZeneca vaccine, into countries to start this vaccination drive, the largest, say, UNICEF in modern history. David McKenzie, CNN, Johannesburg. 
All right, still to come here on First Move, FireEye spied the hack that everyone else missed. Its CEO joins next to discuss how we shore up our defenses. And from co-worker to co-bot, we explore the potential workforce of the future. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and an update now on some of the stories making headlines around the world. Golf legend Tiger Woods is recovering in a Los Angeles hospital this hour, a day after he was seriously injured in a rollover car crash. Doctors say he is awake and responsive after extensive surgery on his leg. Los Angeles County Sheriff says it's nothing short of a miracle that Woods is alive. CNN's Josh Campbell is on the scene in LA for us. Josh, great to have you with us. Do we have any further news on his condition this morning? Yeah, we are learning, Julia, new information about those serious injuries uh, that he received after that violent rollover accident yesterday. We're told that when he arrived here at this level one trauma center, uh, he underwent emergency surgery. That due to his leg being injured as well as his ankle. We're hearing that he actually had to have metal rods and pens inserted into one of uh, his limbs in order to stabilize it. Now, when authorities arrived on the scene, they determined those injuries severe enough uh, that they brought him here to this enhanced facility in order to receive that higher level of care. Uh, At this hour, he is being described as awake, responsive, and recovering, that according to a statement on his Twitter account. Now, we also know that the cause of the uh, crash remains under investigation. Authorities say it appears as though weather was not a factor. It appears as though this was a single vehicle uh, accident. Uh, but you know, as you look at this, these images of that car, as you mentioned, nothing short of a miracle. This vehicle traveling downhill at a high rate of speed, crossed over into incoming traffic, went into an area with uh, trees and shrubs. And again, just, just a miracle that these injuries were not more severe. Finally, it's worth noting that Tiger Woods is no stranger to injury. We know just last month he underwent back surgery, which was the fifth back surgery of his career. He talked to CBS Sports on Sunday. They asked him whether or not he would be playing in the near future. He said that he hoped to actually play uh, in April at the upcoming Masters Tournament in Augusta. Of course, this violent crash yesterday raising serious questions about whether he will be returning to the golf course anytime soon, Julia. We just have to wait and see, um, to your point as well, and it is clearly early days as far as the investigation is concerned. He's obviously an incredibly well-known person. We all know that he has children, his ex-wife, of course, well-known in her own right as well. Any sense of when or if the family are going to come and visit? Yeah, what we're hearing now is that he spoke to his team that was here on site. He was actually here uh, to take part in an event. He obviously doesn't live in Los Angeles, uh, but authorities said that that the first uh, contact that he made was to let this team know, and we assume that notification to the family came later. There's no indication in talking to people here at the hospital that we will actually see the family. If they do arrive, we imagine that they would not come in the front, that they would be uh, taken in a back entrance uh, due to their own privacy. But just because we don't know how long he will be in hospital, uh, we don't know when, when the family will arrive and, and whether they'll be here, but obviously very concerned. And of course, you know, like most of the, the country and most of the world, so glad that this it wasn't the worst case. Authorities say that, you know, if he wasn't wearing his seatbelt, this could have easily been a fatality. So although he has serious injuries, obviously good news for the family that he is now uh, well, he's, uh, he's awake, he's recovering and just waiting to see when he will actually be released. Yeah, our hearts are with him and, um, and his family and friends and we wish him well. Josh, great to have you there for his, Josh Campbell there in Los Angeles. Thank you. 
Okay, we're on the countdown now to the market open and uh, fasten your seatbelts. U.S. futures had been firmly higher just an hour or so ago, but they've turned lower now with tech stocks under pressure once again after falling some 4% in Tuesday's trading session. All this as U.S. bond yields push higher, particularly the longer-dated 30-year bond. Rising bond yields have put pressure on stocks in recent weeks. But, of course, as we mentioned earlier on the show, as Fed Chair Jay Powell said in his testimony yesterday, it's not yet a concern. It's actually a sign of a recovering economy. In the meantime, more positive news in the fight against COVID. Shares of Johnson & Johnson are on the rise pre-market on news that an FDA panel has given the thumbs up to its single-shot COVID vaccine for emergency use. This paves the way for full regulatory approval as soon as this week. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine will become the third approved so far in the United States. Right now to the latest on the SolarWinds hack investigation. Microsoft President Brad Smith praising cybersecurity firm FireEye's transparency in yesterday's Senate hearing on the massive cyber attack. It took the leadership and I'll say even the courage of companies like FireEye and SolarWinds to step forward and share information. And it is only through this kind of sharing of information that we will get stronger to address this. And joining us now is the CEO of FireEye, Kevin Mandia. Kevin, great to have you with us on the show. That statement from Brad Smith, and he regularly comes on the show, was a standout for me. The other thing was you saying, we still don't know how they broke into SolarWinds that I'm aware of. Two critical factors, the fact that you raised the alarm and said, we've got a problem here and it's a big problem, and two, that we still don't Mm -hmm. know how they did it. Well, we don't know how they broke into SolarWinds, but what FireEye found was an implant in SolarWinds. And those things are very hard to find, Julia. There's no magic wand you can wave to say, find an implant or a backdoor into my network. The supply chain was compromised. The implant was put into SolarWinds and it was clandestine or surreptitious on you know, 17,000 networks for six months or more. Kevin, for for viewers out there, just to remind them, the way that you found this initially, it was an employee Mm -hmm. that asked or requested use of another phone. And you checked that and you were like, hang on Mm -hmm. a second. This employee doesn't have a second phone. That that was how you found this initially. Yeah, you know, we had to start pulling on a thread. You know, all of us now are using our cell phones and working from home and getting those six digit codes that you type in. And a lot of people do have two devices registered. They have an iPad registered, they have an iPhone registered, or or maybe they use some other kind of phone. But the bottom line is this. One of our security staff noticed a new phone being registered for one of our employees and just called him up and said, hey, listen, you just logged in. Did you you register a new phone, yes or no? And that person said, no, I didn't. Well, then who did? We knew we had unauthorized access on our network at that point. I know it's a hypothetical question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think if you hadn't found that, that we would know about this hack at this stage? And I was showing a chart of just how Mm -hmm. huge the supply chain impact and the web Mm -hmm. upon which people are impacted, if not affected, um, is. Do you think we would know? You know, I think over time we would have found it, period. You know, FireEye, we are a company that does investigations all the time. As we're having this conversation, we're responding to over 150 security breaches. 
So when we were compromised, we did what we do for our customers. We put almost 100 people on our compromise. Most of the people working on the intrusion in the fire eye had over their, you know, their proverbial 10,000 hours of responding. And we found it based on exhausting every single investigative lead we could. The reality, though, is there's a little bit of trails of smoke about this breach showing up in other ways, but it took FireEye to help everyone connect the dots and recognize, okay, there is a fire, it's a SolarWinds implant, and we've got to do something about it. And what, and I know your focus and what the focus of yesterday's hearing was, is how can we improve this process? Because you identified this. Microsoft obviously mm-hmm. was involved. You were then letting know your clients know, look, potentially there's been a breach here. SolarWinds was obviously involved as well. But that's a, a sort of chain of command that, quite frankly, is relatively slow in the face of something so huge. How can we improve this? The first has to be communication and disclosure. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that happens right now is when you're hacked and you know it, it's a real lonely planet and you have liabilities that come at you, the investigations are complex. If we wait to get intelligence from companies that are compromised and they do a full-blown investigation and then disclose, we're waiting too long. So one of the many things that we have to do in many different nations is figure out how do we get actionable intelligence into the right agencies fast so you can safeguard your private sector and safeguard governments. And that's a lot of the conversation we had yesterday at the Senate Intelligence Committee is how do we have threat sharing almost in real time that's confidential so we can kind of put shields up against all the attacks and all of us be as secure as the person who knows the most about a particular threat. If I look at the situation in Europe when there's a data breach, they have Mm -hmm. a number of hours to identify the authorities, like a a disclosure Mm -hmm. program. Would you be in favor of something like this? Even if you don't have all the details, as you said, you're following threads and some of it's smoke and there's mirrors in there. If you had a window Mm -hmm. upon which or the moment you found something, you had to go like to a federal disclosure program and go, we think we've got a problem. Mm -hmm. Would that work at least to alert people that there may be a problem? Yeah. Well, it is complex, and I'll tell you why. It's like, what do you tell? Who do you tell it to? Right. When do you have to tell them? And the challenge is, a lot of times, if you just go forward with, hey, we've had a breach, and you don't have a ton of expertise, and you don't have your arms around it, you can actually create an unbelievable amount of fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's unwarranted. And I know most breach disclosure laws, if not all of them, are really designed to protect consumers' privacy and consumer information. We actually need to think about disclosures to protect IP, disclosures to protect nations in case there's a lot of disruptive attacks, such as all the ransomware attacks that are hitting healthcare, hitting pharmaceuticals, and people are making billions of dollars by hacking companies and shutting them down. So disclosure laws are very complex. So what I was talking about is at least tackle things that are actionable, like a threat intelligence sharing that's mandatory for first responders and folks that do do investigations into unauthorized access. Uh, The disclosure laws are going to be different in every country. Every country has different cultures, different expectations of privacy. But we are going to have to look at disclosure that's broader than just protecting consumer information. What we should talk about, and we haven't yet, is who did this or who we think did this. And I just want to play mm-hmm. a, a little clip of what Brad Smith had to say about what they think. Mm-hmm. I do think we can say this. 
At this stage, we've seen substantial evidence that points to the Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency, and we have found no evidence that leads us anywhere else. Kevin, I want to get your take on this because companies can shore up the defences, they can spend more, governments can spend more in trying to protect themselves better. But if we're that sure, and we are relatively sure, it seems, about who did this, even if we can't decipher motive versus something far more nefarious than just spying, quite frankly, does there need Mm -hmm. to be a deterrent effect here too, in your mind? Well, I think what Brad always talks about, and he's right, we do have to have what he calls rules of the road, I call rules of engagement. The challenge we have, Julie, is every modern nation that's developing an offensive capability in cyberspace doesn't know what rules to play by. So over the last five years, what we've seen responding to thousands of security breaches is nations don't know where the borders are, and we're seeing a gradual escalation all the time. And so the question we have now, we're at a point of time where what's the next escalation? What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for something that's so intolerable that we have to do something? Or can we finally just cross, you know, create the red lines and say, okay, here's the boundary. Do not have offense that does these following things. And I think you can come up with rules of engagement, but without them, you can't hold people accountable. You have to have rules. The whole world right now doesn't have any. Because this is the key. Everyone spies on everyone else, whether they choose to deny right. it. They, they deny it until they're caught and then they continue to deny it. And it's all very mm-hmm. awkward. Are we saying that we're going to have to have an acceptance that people are going to spy on each other? But if you take down or damage mm-hmm. someone's critical infrastructure, because the Commerce Department, the Energy Department, there were so right. many critical departments in the United States that were spied upon here, even if nothing material happened, we assume. Mm-hmm. Um, that's frightening. Yeah, I, I can tell you, bottom line, it's going to be hard to come up with rules for espionage because a lot of nations recognize there's asymmetry. If you can't beat someone with tanks, can't beat them with airplanes, maybe you can beat them in cyber. And because of that asymmetry, I think those rules of engagement will be hard to define, but they are doable when espionage crosses the line into shutting things down, doing destruction, and really, it's just criminal at that point. So I think rules can be found, especially on the criminal aspect, because as we're having this conversation, I'm very certain there's a lot of companies dealing with ransomware, and we need international cooperation, and we need to start holding nations accountable for being a safe harbor for folks stealing billions of dollars through ransomware. Yeah, it's the accountability that's key. Kevin, great to have you on. Come back soon and talk to us, please. Thank you we need very to push much. for progress. Kevin Mundy, the CEO of Fire, right there. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are up and running this Wednesday, and we're looking at fresh volatility, I think, on Wall Street. Tech stocks falling once again after recovering from a 4% slide during yesterday's session. Little question why. U.S. bond yields are moving sharply higher again. 10-year U.S. yields pushing through 1.4%. Fed Chair Jay Powell saying, look, rising rates, not yet a concern. But the market seems to uh, beg to differ. Once again, it's the speed at which these yields are pushing higher, I think, that has Wall Street's concerns raised. All right, from that to the twilight zone, there's the electric vehicle maker market valuation and Lucid Motors, whose very name suggests something easy to understand. Well, I can tell you Lucid's on a roll after its merger with a SPAC 
or a special purpose acquisition company called Churchill Capital. Stay with me. The company raised $4.4 billion in cash. And based on Tuesday's stock price, it's in the top 10 most valuable automakers in the world. And by the way, it's yet to deliver a single car. Peter Rawlinson is CEO and CTO of Lucid Motors. He's a former Tesla engineer too. Peter, wow, exciting times for you and your company. I do, and I was watching yesterday, I do feel like it was a bit of um, buy the rumour, sell the fact a little bit yesterday. But where do you and how do you feel in light of what happened yesterday? Well, I'm really excited for the future of the company. Uh, We've used this spec process to go public, to access this uh, fantastic array of long-term bluest of blue chip investors. And that's securing a long-term future for the company. It's enabling us to accelerate our plans. And our mission is to accelerate the adoption of sustainable mobility. And we're going to do that through high-tech EVs here in the U.S., I saw you quoted as saying raising this money and it's $4.4 billion effectively de-risks the business. We've seen some of your competitors like Tesla struggle for money over the years, struggle to raise money. Are you knocking out with this process any of that concern? Absolutely. If we compare the amount that we've managed to raise through this process, the $4.4 billion that you referred to, it's uh, an order of magnitude greater than the several hundred million that Tesla made when they IPO'd. And that's securing a long-term future, enabling us to get way past just putting our first product, which is behind me, the Lucid Air Dream Edition, which is coming to the market this year in our brand new factory, uh, the first purpose-built EV factory in North America. That's happening this year. You know, I was looking at some of the analysts who were talking about where the share price is trading, and I'm sure you're not going to want to talk about the share price itself, but just based on a $30 share price here, you're being valued at 20 times 2022 revenue forecasts. That's double what Tesla is valued at today. And we've not even seen one of your cars on the road or sold yet. Peter, how do you put that into perspective? Is it daunting? Is it amusing? Is this market completely crazy? What is your view? Well, well, my focus is upon getting the car into production. We haven't achieved anything till we get this car into production. But I think that um, evaluations are based upon the technical prowess and provenance of an EV company. That's why Tesla's so highly valued, because Tesla recognizes it's a tech race, and they have the world's best technology in production. We believe that we have technology which is the most advanced, and we're really going to create a, 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 a tech race, which will benefit not just the customer, but the whole world, because, you know, we have an environmental Uh, crisis on our hands here. And we need to accelerate this widespread adoption of EV technology. And right now, uh, it's a one horse race with Tesla. Now, having said that, our product, we're going in the luxury sector. Our product is primarily a Mercedes-Benz competitor. But I do think it's a, a very relevant reference point to note Tesla's preeminence in the arena 
of electric technology. And that's why it commands that market cap. And I think the sort of price that you see on the CCIV stock is a, a, probably a reflection of the market's view of our tech. Wow. You're saying that your institutional investors, and you, you did get some really big names, see your technology as double as good as Tesla's well, technology. I, 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 I wouldn't put that comparative, but I, I would say this, that it's a remarkable illustrious roster, the bluest of blue chip companies that we have managed to attract. And they have done very thorough analysis and due diligence, as have CCIV. And I think that that is a portent of things to come. These people are very savvy investors, very conservative. They've in for the long term. And not only have we got this, uh, this, this, this glittering array of blue chip companies, but they paid $15 for the pipe, not 10. Mm. And I think there is a reason for that. They understand just how good our tech is. What we've got to do now is implement that. And I've got 2,000 people in the company laser focused on implementing, getting this car into production this year and making it absolutely wonderful. Um, if you look at the market that Tesla entered 10 years ago, I would think they were cut a lot of slack for quality because the electric experience was so beguiling. I think that the world is a very different place now. We won't be cut that slack. We have to get the quality right. That's what our customers demand and deserve. And that is our focus. Peter, very quickly, what's the car behind you? It's the Lucid Air Dream Edition, and this is not a virtual background, Julia. This is real. I'm in our Beverly Hills studio here um, in Los Angeles, and this is the Dream Edition, which is coming this year. Can you get in that car and drive away? Uh, I, I, I could if I wasn't speaking to you. I know. Just checking. Just wanted to know. Very quickly, final point, because we have seen um, a lot of news flow around Tesla's specific decision to invest in crypto and potentially at some point in the future accept Bitcoin or other digital assets for purchase of these cars. Peter, any views on adding Bitcoin to your balance sheet now that you have $4.4 billion worth of cash and or accepting digital assets for payment for your cars that come to market in the future? Um, I think if it's it's legal and legitimate, then we'll certainly consider it. Uh, I think think right now, uh, I I think that's for the future. Uh, Our focus is upon uh, just getting this thing into production. Yes, I hear you. Let's just get a car on the road and make one available Mm. to be purchased. Peter, great to have you on with us. You can drive away now. This is very exciting. Peter Rawlinson. Thank you so much. I think I will. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right, up next. Could this robot be your next co-worker? ABB Robotics joins us to discuss its newest co-bots. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. ABB Robotics has unveiled a new generation of industrial robots. The company calls them Cobots, 
collaborative robots because they're designed to work with humans. ABB's first-generation cobots have been put to all kinds of uses. Volkswagen bought them to build its electric vehicles. Singapore is using them to carry out 50,000 COVID-19 tests a day. I'm pleased to say joining us now is Sami Atia. He's president of ABB Robotics. Sami, great to have you on the show. Talk to me about the new robots and what makes them special. Well, thank you very much, Julia, for having me. Uh, this is a great day for, for ABB. After a successful launch of uh, Yumi, that's our cobot in 2015, uh, now we launch the next generation of uh, what we call collaborative robotics, robots that can work side by side uh, with humans. Uh, you can see behind me on the right side that Gofa, that is the robot that is for first-time users. It can carry a weight of five kilogram. Uh, it has the highest reach in amongst its its uh, its peers, but also with a high speed. So imagine five large bottles of water uh, at a speed of two meters per second. That's what uh, Gopher can do. <laughs> and the uh, uh, the other one is Swifty. That's the fastest one in the industry out. It's five meters per second. So it's really entering into new uh, uh, segments and also for medium size and small enterprises to raise their level of automation. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because I mentioned and reiterated the cobots, this idea that they are there to work with humans. But obviously, there's going to be the instant reaction from our viewers, which is that you're going to be replacing humans. You did a survey of global companies that talked about the, these roles and the, the, the roles that these robots are doing and actually how difficult it is to hire people to do a lot of these repetitive tasks. Just expand upon that for me because this was a fascinating piece of your your recent survey well that, that's a very good point uh, i mean the shortage of labor is actually accelerating um over the years and many uh of our customers are really having challenges finding people who want to do what we call the 3ds dull uh, dirty and 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 dangerous jobs and robots in general take over these jobs that less and less people want to actually do and it, interestingly also the question of of employment and robotization if you look at the three uh, most uh, advance in terms of robotization, that is Japan, Germany, and, and South Korea, and they all enjoy a much lower unemployment rate than, uh, than the rest. So the customers we actually introduce robots and automation, they actually uh, hire more people uh, over time. It's, it's counterintuitive, but it's really true. Um, what uh, is really important in this case is that we make the robots easy to use, and that is one of the new, uh, you know, software features we have here, is that you actually you take the arm of the robot, you just move it, you click on a button uh, on the positions you want to have, and the robot repeats what you want to do. But in overall, it is not taking away our jobs. It's actually creating productivity and, and prosperity for all of us. And your point about um, South Korea and Germany, I think, is a fascinating one, too. I guess it's got to come hand in hand with skills training, though, for people to get them into jobs and have the right skills in order to keep that unemployment rate down, irrespective of the role of robots. Talk to me about the potential growth, because I do think the last year has been transformative, whether for social distancing, uh, whether for health purposes as well. People yes. once again looking at automation and the role of robots and going, there are things that these robots can do that's far safer. The COVID tests, obviously, in Singapore is a great example. 
Yes, yes. I mean, uh, we made a survey just recently, uh, globally 1,600 uh, businesses, and they gave uh, the feedback that 84% of them will actually increase their uh, spend on robotization over the next uh, decade, and 85% uh, said that the pandemic has accelerated the need for robotization. One point you just mentioned, which is social distancing, is one of the big outcomes of the study, is that companies want to become more resilient to the uncertainties. And you do that by introducing technologies that, that enable them to continue a work despite you know, fluctuation of demands, uh, sickness, and so on. Um, and nevertheless, the robots will always take the jobs that, that are repetitive, and humans can, can work side by side with them and, and, and support them as, as they grow. And what we saw also in the pandemic is that many, many industries take pharmaceutical. I mean, you mentioned the example of, uh, of uh, in Singapore, we were able to do 50,000 COVID tests per day using 50 robots. Now, this kind of productivity is possible only with robots. If we rely on humans, that's first of all exposing the human uh, with, with the unnecessary risk, and also the productivity robot is, is significantly higher. And I'm very proud also that in the US, we worked with uh, Charles Boyce. It's a company in New York that used to do uh, produce uh, electronics. And uh, Charles came to us and said, can you help us produce ventilators? And we, together with him, were able in one month to shift the whole production using robots into producing ventilators for the state of New York. And he produced 3,000 ventilators in March and in, uh, and in April. So really fascinating what this new technology can do for society uh, as well. Incredible thing to be part of. Sammy, very quickly, because I have about 30 seconds, cost. What does one of these robots cost? And to be a complete geek about this, do you have any modeling on um, how quickly, based on increased productivity, you can recoup the cost based on saved man hours? Absolutely. I mean, they cost between ten to twenty-five thousand and thirty-five thousand, and uh, we have many cases that a return on investment is between six months and twelve months. They really introduce more productivity and output for for our customers. Wow, six or twelve months. Fantastic. Sami, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for um, sharing your work with us. Sami Atia, thank you very much. of ABB Robotics. Great thank to chat you. to you, sir. Thank you. All right, coming up. Do you remember when the movie Love Actually crowbarred the word Christmas into a song, Love is All Around? Well, Michael Bolton's done just a similar thing to one of his biggest hits in a swipe at the trading app Robinhood. Let's face the music after the break. Welcome back to the show. Two big names in travel and tourism reporting eye-watering losses. Heathrow Airport's racked up a loss of around £2 billion. Aqua Hotels lost around €2 billion. Euros. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, no surprise, the struggle that both of these firms have faced. Yes, Heathrow said it was the worst year in their history. Normally, they have around 80 million passengers a year, for instance, as they did in 2019. Last year, little over 20 million passengers. Both companies have implemented major cost-cutting programs. Both companies have shored up their balance sheets as best they can, but they're really struggling. And Heathrow says it's got enough cash to see it through 2023, but it's worried about the longer-term future. It says, for instance, that 
If longer term passenger numbers were to drop below 27 million a year, it would struggle to survive. And it wants to see more support from the UK government, calling for more support. They release their budget next week. Julia? And what about the outlook? What about vaccines? Hopes? <laughs> Hope is in short supply, isn't it? Well, mm. Accor did say they saw some green shoots in some markets like Asia, the Middle East and Africa. But of course, Europe, which is its core market, is just a patchwork of lockdowns. For Heathrow Airport in England during this third national lockdown, well, that is pretty much in hibernation mode. Both companies hugely reliant on a vaccine rollout and not in any one country. It's no good just having an advanced vaccine rollout in the UK. Travel is by its very nature international. So while both CEOs are bullish that as vaccines are rolled out, they will see some recovery. Um, a bit of a caution, really, because we need to see this vaccine rolled out right across the world. The Heathrow Airport CEO, for instance, saying he hopes to see a return to travel in the summer. Brits may be allowed to book holidays from the middle of May. But will they want to? We've seen a flurry of airline bookings, but will they follow through on those bookings? What about testing? What about quarantine requirements? Yeah. Not just in the UK, but also in other destinations. So this industry, these businesses, I'm very hopeful for recovery, but really it's out of their hands. It's to do with the vaccine rollout and all of those restrictions that governments ultimately implement. Julia? And greater coordination between nations on all of these things. We can only wish and hope. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that update there. All right, just when you thought the whole Robin Hood saga couldn't get more weird, enter stage left, the singer, Michael Bolton, by rewriting, or some might say butchering, his 1989 hit... How am I supposed to live without you? No. Bolton criticizes Robin Hood's order flow in an advert for a rival brokerage. Michael, take it away. Tell me how am I supposed to trade without you? Mr. Bolton, yes, move on. For Crimes Against Music, you have much to answer for. I tell you what, though, that's an ad campaign worthy of a Madman episode. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. That's it from me. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.